God's Word, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 1? We're going to be looking this morning at verses 9 through 11. This is Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. Listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say to us this morning. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we need to hear a word from you today. Uh, We need you to tell us what to believe and how to live. Father, more than that, we need you to tell us why it is that you love us in Christ and how that empowers us to be your people. Give us your grace through your word. In Christ's name, amen. What does God want from me? It's a question that we all ask at some point in our lives, or we all should ask at some point uh, in our lives. Maybe you're here and you're just graduating from high school, uh, and you're wondering, what does God want from you? Does he want you to go on to college? Where might he want you to go to college? Uh, What vocation might he want you to pursue? Perhaps you're here and you're in college. You're wondering about a major, uh, what line of work to go into. Maybe you're a parent. And you're wondering what God wants from you in terms of schooling uh, or discipline for your children. Uh, Maybe you're in the midst of a career. You're trying to decide whether to take a new job, to stay where you are, maybe even to change career fields. What does God want from you? Maybe you're retired and you're trying to decide if God wants you to relax or travel uh, or get involved in some ministry. I saw a lot of smiles with relax. You know, this is a question that has spawned an entire cottage industry of books uh, and fashion, for that matter. We have the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. We have What Would Jesus Eat, the book. What Would Jesus Drink, the book. A Christian Guide to Investing. My personal favorite book that I found on Amazon is The One, A Realistic Guide to Choosing Your Soulmate. All of these answering the question, what is it that God wants from us, and all of these actually reflecting a good desire, a desire to live a life that pleases our God. You see, we want God to direct our lives. We want to live in a way that pleases Him, and we want Him to direct us specifically. We want to know where to go to college. We want to know what to major in. We want to know whether to send our kids to public or private or homeschool. We want to know where to work and what to do. These are good desires. I've got good news and bad news for us, though, this morning, and because I'm a pastor, I'll start with the bad news and work towards the good. The bad news is this. God does not direct our lives that specifically. In other words, God does not have a a secret plan for your life that he sprinkles clues around you for uh, that you have to discover and walk this path or God's not going to bless you. God doesn't do that to you. The good news, though is that he does tell you what he wants from you. He tells us, his people, what he wants from us. And our passage this morning in Philippians might be one of the most clear passages 
and Scripture telling us what it is that God wants from us. Uh, there's a lot in these three verses. Uh, I'm going to try to boil it down to three things. Uh, and because I'm a pastor, they all start with the letter A. That is abounding love. God wants abounding love from us. He wants approving excellence. That is, he wants us to approve the things that are excellent. We'll talk about what that means. And he wants abiding righteousness. Abiding righteousness. So those are the three things that are going to anchor our discussion this morning. Abounding love. Let me see the second one. Approving excellence and abiding righteousness. So let's jump in. Paul tells us in verse 9 that it is his prayer for us that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What's interesting is Paul does not specify who this love is for, right? He doesn't say whether this is love for God, a love for neighbor, love for our spouses. Uh, he doesn't say. He says it is love that is abounding. It is growing. It is bounteous in our lives. I think then it's safe to say that what Paul's getting at here is that our love is both for God and neighbor. He leaves it vague on purpose. Our lives are to be characterized by both of these because ultimately love for God and love for people are inseparable. You see that throughout scripture, but perhaps most explicitly uh, in 1 John chapter 5 verse 1. He says, uh, John says this, he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Love for God and love for others is inseparable. Well, so what does this love look like? Paul describes it as love that is growing in knowledge and all discernment. Love that grows in knowledge and discernment. So let's think for a moment about what that actually means. The love that we are to have, the love that we are to grow in, is a knowing love. It is a love that knows. And in many ways, Christ is the model for this kind of love. You see, that's one of the great truths of the gospel, is that Christ knows you. Christ sees you. Christ knows everything about you. He knows your darkest secrets, your deepest hopes, the things that keep you up in the middle of the night. He knows the worst thing you've ever done and the best thing you've ever done. Christ knows everything about you, and he looks at you as you truly are, and he loves you knowing everything about you without blinking, without flinching, without recoiling in horror, Christ knows you as you truly are, and Christ loves you. So then what I want to do is think about what does it mean to have a knowing love with respect to God and a knowing love with respect to other people? How does that look? Well, with respect to God, I think that there are two ditches we can fall in. Uh, as I was preaching the sermon to my wife last night, she told me I should explain what I mean by ditches or else we're going to wonder why I'm talking civil engineering. Uh, we're walking on a road, and on either side of the road is a ditch. We want to stay on the road and not fall into the ditches. So that's where we're going to go. I'm going to tell you what the ditches are, and then I'm going to tell you what I-40 looks like. Uh, one of the ditches that we can fall into is a love that wants to experience God without knowing him. In other words, it is love without knowledge. 
perhaps the best illustration of what that looks like uh, would be to draw on one of the primary images that Scripture gives us for our relationship to God, and that's marriage, right? God describes God the Father as a wonderful husband to us, his people. So to draw on that image a little bit, imagine that I take my dear, patient wife with me on a date. Uh, we get a babysitter, the kids are in bed, we don't have to think about anything but ourselves. It's a lovely time. So we go somewhere nice for dinner, we sit down, uh, we do the thing that, that young parents do when you go on a date and you just sort of stare into the distance for the first 10 minutes. And then my wife opens her mouth. She starts to tell me about what's been going on with her, and I say, shh, let's not ruin this. I just want to experience your love. I don't want to know any more about you. That date just turned into a train wreck very fast. That's what we do, in, in essence, when we tell God that we're not concerned to, to know him as he is in his character. We just want to experience him. That's, that's one of the ditches we can fall into, is a love that experiences without, without knowing. There's another ditch. Uh, there's a ditch that maybe the more theologically minded among us might fall into. And that's, that is a, uh, a knowledge that doesn't come with love. That God becomes sort of a science experiment or something for us to observe and dissect and, and study, but never actually makes it to our hearts. Uh, it is knowledge without love. We become sort of brains on sticks. Now, depending on your personality and your experiences, you might be tempted towards either one of these ditches at various points in your life. But the goal is not just to stay out of the ditches, but to stay on the road. So then positively, what does this love look like? What does a knowing love for God look like? A knowing love for God is love that delights to know him. It is love that delights in the character of God. It's a love that loves what he loves, that seeks to know what he loves, that seeks to know what pleases him, that seeks to know what delights our God in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. We want to know God and to love him as we understand his character more and more. So that's what knowing love for God looks like. What does a knowing love for others look like? Well, in many ways, it's similar. Uh, because the love that we show our neighbors is a, a knowing love. Uh, we want to know our neighbors. We want to know others, whether they're inside or outside the church. We want to know them like Christ knows us and Christ loves us. That is, Christ moved towards us, knowing everything about us. He loved us when we were unlovely. We want to seek to do the same for our neighbors. Let me go back to my ditch metaphor, because we can do the same thing with our neighbors. One is that we love without discernment. Uh, that's, that's what Paul says here. This is a love that grows in knowledge and discernment. When we love without discernment, we just sort of cast a blanket approval on everything that our neighbors do. We accept them as they are and are happy to leave them where they are. This kind of love is not an option for us because this is not the kind of love that Christ has for us. 
Christ knows us. He knows what is good and bad about us. He moves towards us and he heals us. We want to love our neighbors in a knowing way, not just blanketly approve everything they've done. There's another danger that we have uh, of just knowing others without actually stopping to love them. Uh, when we do that, we typically say, I've got to figure this person out. And when we figure this person out, we kind of put them in a category. We put a label on them. They are uh, an atheist or a homosexual um, or greedy or pick something. They're anything. You, you put a label on them and you just sort of know who they are. And you don't ever stop to actually learn about them. You don't ever actually stop to know them. You just label them. You know them without loving them. Again, that's not the kind of love that God has for us. The love that God has for us is a love that knows our neighbors, that understands who they are, that sees what motivates them, that experiences their brokenness and moves towards them anyway. That's the kind of love we are called to have for our neighbors because that's the kind of love that Christ has for us. And so as we grow in love, the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that we will learn to approve what is excellent. We will learn to approve what is excellent. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say that we learn to avoid what is bad. We learn to approve what is excellent, not avoid what is bad. If that's true, if what Paul says is true, and, and I think it is, or I wouldn't have a job, the Christian life is about learning to love what is good, even more than it is about learning to say no to what is bad. I think we see a misplaced emphasis all around us. We, we talk about things like setting up computer filters to keep us from looking at things online that will cause us to sin, like the Pottery Barn website. We, we meet for accountability. We, we talk about messing up and we kick ourselves for a week on end because we haven't failed to avoid this sin we struggle with. We talk about good kids as those who don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. You see this especially in your parenting. Uh, when you say things like, don't hit your sister, don't argue. We say this to teenagers, don't date non-Christians. Don't have sex until you're married, as if the sum of the Christian life is learning each and every situation in which we have to say no. I saw a, a, a dear uh, older man uh, illustrate this in a funny way. He was, he was giving his testimony uh, at our church in St. Louis, and he was a World War II vet. And he said, when I left for World War II, I was a non-smoking, non-drinking non-womanizing individual. And by God's grace, when I got home from World War II, I was still a non-smoking individual. <laughs> he, he went on to talk about how God had grown him and, and shown him his grace and taught him to love what was beautiful and not just avoid sin, but it was a great way to illustrate how if we think the Christian life is about saying no, we're missing something very beautiful. You see, a, a life where we are obsessed with avoiding what is bad is only half the picture of the gospel. 
It's a good thing to avoid sin, but it's not a good thing to only seek to avoid sin. That was the error of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees were so concerned about avoiding sin that they went and they took God's law and they built a fence around it so that no one could even come close to violating the law. So they said, you know, God has told us not to work on the Sabbath, where we're going to say you can't even carry your mat on the Sabbath lest you accidentally do work. Well, here God commands us to tithe. Well, we're going to go ahead and tithe not only our income, we're going to tithe the things we purchase in case the guy we bought them from forgot to tithe his income. They were obsessed, they were scrupulous about avoiding what was bad, about avoiding breaking the law. But how did Jesus respond to the Pharisees? He said they were so scrupulous in avoiding sin that they missed the heart of God. The Pharisees were so scrupulous in avoiding sin that they neglected the weightier matters of the law and they missed God's heart. Think about that for a second. The Pharisees were so concerned to avoid sin, they were so concerned to avoid looking at pornography on the internet, to avoid gossiping, to avoid losing their temper. Well, they might not have had an internet connection. But they were so concerned to avoid sin that they missed the very heart of the God they wanted to serve. Remember what Jesus said to them in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You see, the Pharisees weren't wrong to avoid sin. They were wrong only to want to avoid sin. Because the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, these are positive commands, things to be pursued, not just sins to be avoided. So then what does it look like for us to switch gears, to move from thinking about avoiding sin to thinking about pursuing what is lovely. Let's think through some common sins we might struggle with. Uh, let's say you struggle with the sin of overeating. Well, it's not just about learning to avoid that sin. It's about learning to cultivate contentment and gratitude for all that God has given you. You know, instead of thinking about avoiding gossip, we want to cultivate a love for our neighbor that delights to promote their good name, what is best for them, and their reputation. Instead of telling my six-year-old to stop hitting his sister, I want to teach him to love her and to be gentle with her because God is gentle with us. Instead of telling our teenagers not to have sex before they're married, Let's teach them to love purity because we serve a God who is holy and pure and we love him. Instead of, instead of trying to avoid losing your temper, we want to cultivate patience because God is patient with us. He doesn't lose his temper and be harsh with us. And in the same way, it's not about avoiding the sin of lust. It's about learning to recognize that everyone is an image bearer of God Almighty and is not made as an object for your pleasure. 
I think we can even expand this, not to even just thinking about our own personal sin, but the way we engage the world around us. Because we have to engage the world around us. If we learn to approve what is excellent, what that really means is that we learn to appreciate and recognize true beauty in the world around us. We see with gospel eyes. And what that leads us to do is to affirm the places in our culture where we see beauty and resist the places where we don't. We affirm and we resist. And what does true beauty look like in our culture? It can be art. Um, Art can tell a picture uh, of the true story uh, that is in Christ. Uh, It can be literature. But it can even be something as simple as affirming uh, an unbelieving husband who loves his unbelieving wife well. Um, That is beauty. That is a picture of what is true in the world. Because beauty ultimately serves to point us to the true story of what God is doing in Christ. It gives us a taste of what is real and true in this world, even if it's created by an unbeliever. That's what it looks like for us to approve what is excellent. And so Paul goes on, and he tells us that when love abounds and we approve excellence, our lives will be transformed. He says there in verse uh, 10 and 11 that we will be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I I think it's helpful as we think about what does the fruit of righteousness mean. It's helpful to recognize that in the Greek, righteousness is the same word as justification. Righteousness is the same word as justification. So as we think about the fruit of righteousness, it's almost easier for us maybe to think of this as the fruit that follows our justification. That's what we want to do. We want to cultivate the righteousness that is the fruit of our justification. And when that happens, the gospel becomes the center of our reality. The gospel becomes the story that defines the world we live in, and it's the anchor of our soul in the storm of life. So what is the gospel? What is the good news that is supposed to fill us with fruit? Well, the gospel is simply the good news that though we were dead in rebellion against the Creator God, we deserve nothing but His anger and His wrath and His judgment and really our destruction, that God sent His only Son, and Christ obeyed Him perfectly. He approved what was excellent. He abounded in love for God and for neighbor. He was filled with the fruit of righteousness. But despite his obedience, he went to a criminal's death. He went to our death. You see, Christ rendered to God the obedience that we owe, and he died the death that we deserve. But more than that, God raised him from the dead in triumph over sin and death that we might no longer be bound by their power. And so when we talk about having faith in Christ, all we mean is that we believe that good news was for us, that Christ did that for me 
and for you. And when we believe that and trust that, God applies all of Christ's obedience and his righteousness to us. He declares us perfect based on what Christ did. In other words, this process of cultivating righteousness, this fruit of justification, is really just a process of becoming what God has already declared us to be in Christ. It's a process of cultivating the fruit of this gospel in our lives. Since I'm talking a lot about ditches today, let me give you two more. One of the ditches that we can fall into as we think about growing in grace, as we think about cultivating the fruit of righteousness, is a ditch I like to call the treadmill. And when you get on the treadmill, you strive as hard as possible. You run as hard as you can. You're always working. You are believing that everything is up to you, that you might get in by grace, but you have to stay in by the sweat of your own brow. This is an error. This is the treadmill. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting way to live. And if you fall into this ditch, you're either going to be tempted to pride because you're running six-minute miles, or you're going to be tempted to despair because you can't walk more than a 10-minute mile without coughing and dying. That's one ditch, the treadmill. The other ditch is the hot tub. This is also an error. In the hot tub, kind of hang out. We kind of stew in God's grace, kind of wait on him to change us, and we'll kind of maybe get around to start doing some holy stuff once we start to feel kind of holy. Uh, but we don't want to push it. Uh, we don't really want to, want to sweat. Uh, we just want to hang out. We want to wait on God to change us, and then, lo and behold, we will be changed. If you fall into this ditch, you're going to get lazy. Not only are you going to be lazy, you're going to be kind of narcissistic. You're going to start doing things like celebrating your failures as evidence of God's grace. But this is an error. The treadmill is an opposite error, but the hot tub is still an error. So where do we want to be? Where's I-40 for us if those are the ditches? I-40 is what one theologian calls dependent responsibility. In other words, we work, we strive, we try to cultivate holiness. We pursue things that please God. We want to grow and be changed and be transformed, and we try. But we recognize that we cannot change our own hearts. We cannot. Only God can do that. And so even as we strive and work and seek to grow in holiness, we recognize that God himself is bringing the fruit to bear. We depend on his grace to us in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z, as one pastor has said. The gospel motivates us to pursue holiness. I started this morning by asking the simple question, what does God want from me? And without wanting to pull the rug out from the entire sermon, I actually want to change the question. Because I think a better question than what does God want from me is the question, who does God want me to be? You see, because God's told us what he wants from us. He wants us to abound in love for him and for our neighbors. He wants us to approve what is excellent and true and good and right and beautiful. And he wants us to bear the fruit that accompanies our justification. 
But the problem is we can't do any of those things well enough to earn God's favor. We can't do any of those things well enough to actually become lovely. But the good news for us this morning, the good news of the gospel, is that everything God wants from you, all of these things, abounding love, approving excellence, abiding righteousness, everything God wants from you is already yours in Jesus Christ. Because Christ abounded in love. He approved what was excellent, and he abided in righteousness. Your life is the process of becoming what you already are. And so again, the bad news is that God's not going to send you a secret email. He's not going to lay out clues for you to decipher as to what his will is for your life. He's not going to give you a diet plan, a college major, or an investment strategy. But he is going to give you a savior. He's going to give you a savior who makes you beautiful. A savior who, in Christ, makes you lovely. God delights to help you abound in love to approve what is excellent, and to abide in righteousness. All of that when we have faith in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we can't